Hello and welcome to this episode of Redefining Risk. Today we're chatting about the buzzword that's on everyone's lips. I'm trying to understand is tokenization a quick fix revolution or something a little bit more gradual, an evolution, a transformation. Join us as we unravel the subtle nuances of tokenization, balancing its potential windfalls and the intricate regulations, rulemaking and risk management integrity, as well as the role of liquidity in this ever-evolving landscape. We're joined by Rehan Ahmed, General Manager for MarketNode, to delve into today's conversation on the sidelines of Singapore FinTech Festival 2023. General Manager for Market Node, thank you very much for your time today. I mean, we're sitting down here at the Singapore FinTech Festival, and I know that we've been talking a lot about tokenization, and the title of today's discussion is the tokenization of everything. But I mean, is that a statement or is it a question, right? There's been so much potential for the space for the past six years, and it's something we've been talking about for a long time. So I guess the big question is, is where are we up to in the journey of tokenization? Sure. So essentially, when you look at tokenization estimates, uh, we've heard estimates all the way from 10 to 15 trillion by 2030, right? I think we're at the beginning of the innings. Uh, what is quite encouraging is to see many more financial institutions, banks, and asset managers starting to get into the pilot phase. I think efficiency is the key driver for tokenization right now, such as cost savings across the value chain. I believe the next innings of tokenization will actually be how do you enhance distribution? So if you're an asset creator, you're issuing bonds, structured products and funds, I think the next leap will really come from seeing actual proof of enhanced distribution. So just breaking that apart a bit, you know, if we look at the journey of the past six years or so, maybe it's been slightly different. Why is this time different? Right. So a couple of reasons. Uh, I think there is a, it's a combination of macro and micro reasons. So let's take the fixed income markets as an example. Right. Uh, two years ago, uh, when rates were where they were, short-dated fixed-income products were not that attractive. Right. But now, given rates where they are, uh, when you look at things like money market funds, when you look at things like certificates of deposit or commercial paper, there's an actual need for issuers to reduce their settlement time. Right. So previously, T plus five was the norm in terms of new issue settlement. But now, when you're looking at the cost of carry, what is the opportunity cost, these days start making a lot of sense. Uh, so I think the macro condition from the rate standpoint has uh, incidentally actually helped this market. Second, when you look at funds, uh, money market funds, many were spelling the end of the money market fund about two years ago, given rates where they were. But now they're a highly attractive asset class to invest in, right? And there's a lot of pilots and commercial use cases looking at instantaneous T plus zero settlement for money market funds. So you're starting to see more traction on these kind of assets. But when I broadly look at, can we uh, tokenize uh, private equity, for example, can we tokenize real estate? I would actually argue that is a bit slower than what I'd expected at this point. So it's really interesting you mentioned that. I mean, we're looking at highly liquid versus illiquid assets exactly. there, right? So one... You know, why is it a little bit slower, I guess, in these less liquid asset classes? Right. So I think uh, fundamentally for the less liquid asset classes, uh, they, we see it as a data challenge today. The, issue, the, the good thing about going after very frequently issued assets is that you have a standard data structure. To me, a token, very simplistically, is a collection of data that is then modeled into a smart contract, Right. 
The challenge with highly illiquid products is that because the issuance is very lumpy, you don't get to finesse the data structure as needed. So actually, every new issuance is almost a new project. It's almost a new product, right? And just as I was mentioning earlier, given where macro conditions are, a lot more focus on money market products, a lot more focus on short dated, we almost find that you know, the institutions have gone back to these simpler products. So I think it's a data structure, uh, it's a data structure and standardization challenge that's coming. So yet again, if you look at this journey, I mean, what would be your expectations for the next steps in this data structure, I guess, battle for, for illiquid assets? Sure. So I think the first thing is to, when you look at broadly private assets, right, uh, the first temptation is to try to do everything in private assets. And that's actually quite a dangerous trap, right? So we've started looking at, within private assets, what is the most frequently looked at product? And I think loans or what we call private credit is actually the most frequently looked at product, right? Why? Because many banks lend to lenders, right? Many banks lend to issuers. Many banks now are looking at what are capital recycling opportunities on the back of all of these uh, lending products that they have. So once, one thing that we see is how do we create a structure around something as vanilla as green loans? How do we create a structure around something as vanilla as sustainability link loans and start off that, right? Because the one challenge that we don't want to deal with is supply. We like high-frequency issuance products. But if we're able to work with banks that have existing loans on their books that are looking for a capital recycling solution, this can actually be a way forward because there's enough green loans and sustainability linked loans in the market that need recycling. I mean, just looking at, I get the, the different opportunities for tokenization. From your perspective, are there any, I guess, unsuitable aspects, you know, when you or kind of asset classes that you, you look at and say, look, this doesn't just doesn't make sense for, for tokenization? Right. So I'll, I'll talk about two of them. Uh, one would be public equities, right? They trade day in and day out on uh, major exchanges such as Singapore Exchange. And we do see certain pilots in the industry where these are wrapped within tokens and try to be sold off to other venues. I can't quite see the logic in there, right? And every time you look at a digital twin concept, which is a token representing something that exists elsewhere, that has really never worked for me. Another reason I don't think that works is traditional settlement cycles for legacy market infrastructure is already coming down to T plus one. Like if you look at the U.S., if you look at Canada, these are already coming down to T plus one. So I think the advantages behind tokenization, reducing settlement timing is not that valid anymore for these kind of products. So that's on the highly public products. On the illiquid side, um, again, if you think about a token as a data structure, we like working with existing data structures. But if I look at certain markets like carbon markets, there's a lot of good work being done on voluntary carbon markets today, right? And frankly, they're trying to come up with their data structure. So today, that may not be the right use case for us because the parties that need to come up with the right market structure, the data structure, have their hands full without having to worry about a new technology infrastructure coming in. So, so two examples at different sizes. It's interesting you mentioned carbon structure because naturally when I think of tokenization, I was thinking carbon credits would be you know, the perfect kind of products for that. Right. But you're suggesting based on the, the lack of harmonization across standards. Correct. It just wouldn't, it's not right at this, this point in time? It's not right for us. Having said that, I think it's right for some of the existing players in these markets. And two I can name. One is Climate Impact Exchange. 
or Climate Impact X, which is a joint venture between SGX, Tomasic, DBS, and Stanchart. They are trying to build the marketplace for voluntary carbon markets, right? Uh, and they're the ones who will set the standard for how these marketplaces work. Another company is, uh, I believe, Air Carbon X, which is a consortium of banks that are looking at the post-trade, right? So we are quite happy to work with them once these standards are in place versus us trying to build the standards from the get-go. So as I mentioned, we're sitting on the lines of the Singapore FinTech Festival, and in, you know, across the rooms I'm hearing conversations about real-world assets over and over again. Is this kind of the sweet spot? And I guess more importantly, what does it mean when we talk about the tokenization of, of real-world assets? Sure. So again, if you go back to the 10 to 15 trillion market size estimates, right, there's a lot in there to unpack. Uh, it's a combination of real estate, it's a combination of commodities, it's a combination of some crypto-like assets, and it's a combination of you know, things like whiskey funds, for example, right? Uh, so I think that that target of 10 to 15 trillion is ambitious. And let me give you some stats, right? Globally, the bond market today is in excess of 120 trillion outstanding. Total volume of bonds that exist in tokenized format is less than 1 billion over the last six years, right? So I think there has to be a major exponential change in at least one of these asset classes. Uh, we remain uh, quite confident that bonds, structured products, and funds will take us there. But the more interesting thing is now, how do we move from digitizing these assets into a new distribution model? That's the innings that has to work for this 10 trillion to truly come in, right? And I don't think anyone has that killer app today. The realization that we've come to is we're moving away from talking about collaboration as a concept to really getting into very deep committed partnerships. One I can share with you very openly, uh, within Project Guardian, we worked with HSBC, which is world's top, you know, a global top issuer of structured products. And we work with UOB now that is an ASEAN powerhouse when it comes to distribution of wealth products. I actually see this model getting deeper across all of the asset classes we work on. That to me is a path to the 10 to 15 trillion. But the path of just building these uh, financial market infrastructures and silos, to me, may actually inhibit this, us hitting this number. So, okay, so you see, I guess, the future of distribution, more of these collaborative partnerships. And yes. without these partnerships, you know, this, as you mentioned, kind of optimistic number is potentially unrealistic. Correct. Correct. Okay. Not potentially. I would argue it's highly, highly unrealistic. So, are there any other aspects of market structures that need to, I guess, maybe not change, but evolve to, to, to sure. kind of accommodate these numbers? Sure. So at MarketNode, we are very highly focused on assets, on tokenization of assets, putting in the logic, the business logic behind assets into, into data and smart contracts. The part that we feel needs to catch up with us is actually cash, right? Okay. So as an example, uh, we don't have sing dollar CBDC, right? So the asset and the cash actually have to move at the same speed to enable this. Because I can tokenize that asset at T plus zero, but if the cash is not ready, you're not going to have T plus zero settlement. So I actually expect a lot more to happen on the cash side, whether it's commercial bank digital cash, alternative uh, digital payment providers, and us to work with them. One example I can share with you is our sister company, Partier, right? Uh, which is again, uh, it's backed by Tomasic, uh, DBS, JP Morgan, and Stan Chart as the shareholders. We're starting to look at, as the asset side is moving towards T plus zero, wider variety of assets, 
how can we start working with that kind of a cash infrastructure or value exchange infrastructure to go at the same speed as ours, right? Yet again, you've mentioned C plus one, C plus zero a couple of times. I mean, I know the rest of the region is still just moving towards C plus one at this point in time. If we look at a C plus zero kind of, uh, you know, reality, I mean, there must be a few other things that need to change along the way. I mean, is this even possible at this point in time? Sure. So I think it's it's happening already, uh, to be fair. Uh, I believe there was an announcement recently by Fullerton Fund Management, who've done the first T plus zero money market fund in Singapore dollars. Okay. So I think it's already happening. Blockchain or no blockchain, I think this is already happening. And I think for those kind of, um, you know, when you look at wealth products generally, there's this concept of a push product and a pull product. Money market funds are a pull product. You know, you have your cash to deploy, you want a yield, you're just going to go in and, and invest, right? So I think for these pull products, regardless of the format, digital or otherwise, T plus zero will probably become the norm. It's the push products, the products that have more nuance, such as structured nodes, for example, that I don't see any reason for them to go to T plus zero today. But frankly, where they are today is a T plus 12 settlement cycle. The value for us to bring that down from 12 to two is immense, right? So I think we should separate products from push versus pull. The pull products, I think the market norm will be T plus zero going forward. So it's interesting how you've broken this down to push and pull. And I, I, I totally agree when you look at some of the, the push products, it doesn't make sense today. But when we look at a, a lot of the tokenization kind of projects out there, they have been criticized for the, some of these short-termism yes. in terms of their goals and what they're doing. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Are we changing beyond you know, short-term goals or what is the future? Sure. So uh, actually, that's part of our reason to exist amongst many others, right? What we want to do is build a market-neutral infrastructure that allows for the tokenization and connectivity to distribution networks. And what you realize is, if you look at Singapore as an example, we have 1,194 registered fund managers in Singapore. Big number, right? Think about the number of fund managers who have the R&D resources to build their own tokenization engine. That number is probably 15 to 20. Well, what happens to the other 1,174? So our view is that us being a commercial entity that is backed by the likes of Singapore Exchange Group and Tomasic gives us the operational know-how, but also allows us to be able to provide this technology to everyone who does not want to go through a cycle of building it. So actually, we have a very long-term view of this. Uh, Interestingly, we're having a lot of conversations with parties who've built their own tokenization networks, and now we'll just reach a natural plateau. Because if you think about financial institutions, um, they are there to distribute more products, uh, offer more variety to their clients and banking services. The financial market infrastructure play is a different one, right? Uh, So we're having some very interesting conversations on how we build this future financial market infrastructure together. How do we leverage on concepts such as asset supply, existing components that they may have built? How do we fuse it with what we have built? to be able to offer a market-wide service. It sounds like you're clearly looking at how to address the technical aspects, but right. what about outstanding regulatory or, or other kind of risk uh, issues? I mean, is there sure. anything, are there any other bottlenecks sure. still in the pipeline that need to be addressed? And, sure. and like, I guess more importantly, how optimistic are you about them being addressed? Sure. So let's, um, let's double-click into regulatory and let me break it down into legal and regulatory, right? So what do I mean by legal? By legal, I mean, let's say if you have an existing structured products issuer or bond issuer, they are typically doing their issuances out of an English law program. 
right? And luckily, English law program does allow for usage of DLT as a register. Uh, and that's great because most issuers that are doing structured products and bonds in Asia are using English law. Now, the question is, uh, obviously, you can't just take your existing program and say, I'm using English law. I'm going to record my information on DLT. There's certain changes that will be required for your program to allow for that, right? So I actually expect this thing to come out as a service that a financial market infrastructure would provide to any issuer going forward. So the legal side, I actually think the last six months have been very strong on the legal front uh, because we've been able to pinpoint that, for example, English law will allow for usage of DLT as a register, right? So that's illegal. Uh, on the regulatory side, we continue to watch the EU DLT pilot regime with a lot of interest. Uh, what is interesting in the EU DLT pilot regime is you have some big names in there, uh, existing financial institutions, but you, you're seeing an influx of new category creators who may not be associated with typical financial market infrastructure, who might be trying to play the role of an exchange, an MTF, uh, essentially a digital CSD. We're watching that with a lot of interest as to what happens over there. But today, if I look at our vanilla business as allowing bond issuers to issue assets in a native digital format, uh, the English law, basically any common law, is a good starting point. And we're lucky to have that with any Asian issuers. So it's interesting how you've broken it down into legal versus regulatory issues. I mean, yet again, when we look at non you know, common law kind of uh, jurisdictions and the potential for interoperability between markets. I mean, how are regulators thinking about tokenization, I guess, originally locally, uh, especially from the context of global markets uh, and trying to create interoperable markets? Sure. So I think Singapore, as a, um, as a backdrop, is a very international market. And let me explain what I mean by that, right? Uh, when you look at Singapore as a bond listing venue, uh, 40% of Asian issuers' bonds in offshore, i.e. dollar format, come to be listed in Singapore. So we're actually used to being an international listing hub. If you look at tokenization infrastructure, actually it's a very similar logic. And the question is, how do you bring the parties together to be able to work together, be it in a sandbox or a different industry consortium to enable that? I think Project Guardian is a very good example of that. Uh, it is basically an MAS-led initiative which now has 17 financial institutions. We joined Project Guardian back in May 2022. Uh, and that's expanded greatly. It's started to look at FX execution on chain. It's started to look at uh, fixed income issuance on chain, structured products issuance on chain, fund management, uh, and actually funds on chain, right? So again, a very different approach to the EU DLT pilot regime, whose ambitions and motivations are a little bit different. I think Singapore has always worked on being a hub which attracts international participants to use the local infrastructure, to be able to use the sandboxes locally and test these concepts out, right? So I'd, I'd say it's been a very open, uh, really one of its kind globally, a uh, very open approach to try to foster industry participants together. And uh, it's been a very, very successful effort over the last 18 months. So I, you've mentioned a whole kind of regulatory issues, legal issues, as well as technology. I mean, looking ahead, what do you believe are going to be the next big key catalysts and milestones for right. you know, continued growth and adoption uh, of tokenization across you know, financial markets? Sure. So uh, let me answer that question a little paradoxically. Hmm. I think the ultimate adoption of the technology comes when you don't know it's there, right? 
So as an example, let's say you are an, an investor and you want to see all your digital and so-called paper assets in the same place, right? Because at that point, you've abstracted away the technology from the user experience. That's a point we actually need to get to. So a lot of the work that we're doing right now is actually in the background trying to understand how real custody chains work. And to the end client, whether that's an institutional investor, a high net worth investor, again, we're a B2B business, so we don't cover investors in that way. But we're trying to figure out how to integrate what we do into the custody chain so that for the end client, whether they hold an asset in a paper format or a digital format, they cannot tell the difference, right? So the catalyst to me will really be who figures out how to get this into the traditional custody chain. Uh, Self-custody is, again, one of the, one of the Web 3.0 concepts. But when you look at traditional fund managers given fiduciary responsibility, that concept may not work. They will always need a custodian, a third-party custodian to do this for them. So we're actually doing a lot of work trying to figure out how to fit into the custody value chains. Because the ultimate adoption is you buy something, have a great user experience as a portfolio manager, but then it settles quicker than uh, you know, the prior time you bought a product in a paper format. How do we enable that in the background? That's what we're looking to do. And with that, unfortunately, we're out of time. Now, we've obviously just started to scratch the surface in this trillion-dollar opportunity, but we welcome everyone to keep your finger on the pulse of tokenization uh, because the journey is obviously far from over. So stay tuned for more insightful discussions as we navigate this ever-changing world of finance and tokenization as we continue to redefine risk. <laughs>